Coming to you from Charm City, I'm Cece. And I'm Anthony. And this is Lit. Pop. Bang. All right, we have a great, exciting show for you, a great, exciting guest. Today, we'd like to invite on Lily Danziger. She's a contributing editor at Catapult, an assistant editor at Barrel House Books. She's the editor of Burn It Down, which is a really celebrated, critically acclaimed anthology of essays on women's anger. It comes from Seal Press. It was named one of the most recommended books of the season by Literary Hub. She's also the author of Negative Space, a reported and illustrated memoir selected by Carmen Maria Machado as the winner of the 20th. 2019 Santa Fe Writers Project Literary Award. That comes out in uh, 2021. Lily is the founder of Memoir Monday, a weekly newsletter and quarterly reading series co-curated by Narratively, The Rumpus, Guernica, Granta, Literary Hub, and Catapult, featuring the best memoir writers of today. Uh, Her writing has been published in Long Reads, The Washington Post, Glamour, Playboy, Rolling Stones, and so much more. She lives in New York City and spends way too much time on Twitter, where you can find her. We love Twitter, and we love your presence (laughs) on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, welcome, Lily. We're really excited to have you today. So Anthony just got done with your very robust uh, bio there. But we always <laughs> ask everyone that comes to Lit Pop Bang, if there's anything that we didn't mention in the bio that you would like to mention, anything that stands out to you that you'd like to let our listeners know about? Yeah, what's, what's the you that's not in the bio? <laughs> I don't think so. I think you pretty much covered it. Um, that and uh, I guess I'm I'm learning about myself during quarantine that I was already a homebody and I'm adapting to this very well. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I guess it's that's good the to real hear. me. Yeah, I love that. yeah. I think yeah, some yeah. of us are trapped inside, and some of us are like, "Oh, I love it. I love being here." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's changed our lives, and some for the good and some for the negative. It just depends. Yeah, word. Yeah, yeah. Cece, you want to start us off? Yeah, I had a question. So, um, in Anthony, in the mention of his bio, uh, Anthony mentioned your new book, Lily, called Negative Space. Mm -hmm. Um, Space, it's it's an extraordinary book. I think it's uh, very moving and beautiful to me. Um, But I had a question in specific. Maybe you could first uh, tell the readers, the listeners, a little bit about the book, um, give them an overview of what uh, the the memoir is about. And then I had a specific question in regards to the book uh, being a memoir. It includes it's all about your father and it includes um, visual art pieces by your father. And I really wanted to ask you, what do you think about in terms about visual art and how that engages memory, um, both for you and for your readers and what that does? I thought it was a really interesting addition to a memoir. I haven't seen many memoirs that are uh, constructed as such. I thought it was a very thoughtful thing thing to do to give us an idea more of who your father was. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to um, ask you, you know, what, how do you think that affects uh, the memories um, in in terms of yourself and how readers uh, engage with artwork and um, connect it with memory? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, So yeah, as you said, the the book is largely about my father, uh, who was an artist and a heroin addict, and he died when I was 12. And so a lot of the book is the story of me kind of trying to piece together a fuller story of his life. Uh, Mm -hmm. When he died, I still totally idolized him, you know, in that childlike way. So I was trying to create a new and more complicated and nuanced relationship with my father in my adult life. But the only way I could do that was through his notebooks and letters and interviewing people who knew him and through his artwork. So, you know, big, really the reason that I, it was so important to me to include the images is because I was really feeling like a lot of it was a conversation kind of between his mm. artwork and my writing. Mm. Um, and, you know, he, he expressed himself through visual mediums and I expressed myself through words, you know, so that was kind of how we could go back and forth. It it felt more authentic to who he was and how Mm. he saw the world than, you know, only responding to his writing, even though I do have a couple quotes in there from his notebooks and letters and stuff like that. Um, And as far as memory, you know, I, I grew up surrounded by his artwork. You know, he, he was a very prolific artist and he was always working and always making new stuff. And yeah. it was all over our apartments when I was a kid. And then, you know, since he 
died, it's become even more important to me to always have his work around me. You know, it's hanging in every room in my apartment. Um, and so an interesting part of the process was learning to see that work in a new light. You know, yeah. I, I was just so accustomed to it always being around and it just was, you know, it's like members of the family, right? So this bird mm. sculpture that's always been on my wall, it's just always there. And so making myself kind of look at it with fresh eyes and look at it critically and, and really interrogate what those pieces are, are saying and, and what they're doing and what they're really all about, which it was very similar to the, the overall process of writing memoir, right? Where you have to do that same thing with your memories and your own life experiences and your perspectives, you know, and, and just try and see things that are so familiar to you in a new way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that's really interesting what you said. Uh, um, you call the paintings are like members of the family. I think that's a really great um, analogy to think about um, how the paintings were to you maybe prior to writing uh, this memoir. But I also think it's really interesting to think about getting to know a parent through another medium, right? You know, mm -hmm. I think so many of us experience them. My parents are not artists. So, you know, I experience them and I feel like maybe a one dimensional way. But it's interesting to think about um, how thinking about a parent's visual art, what they've sort of left behind can be another like layer to them. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that was kind of, you know, the, the, that was one of those things that like, it felt so obvious once I realized it, you know, but, right. yeah. but realizing that like, I actually, I'm lucky in that way to have these tangible pieces of my father here still that I can interact with and, and converse with yeah. through writing. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you say converse too. I love the idea of the conversation. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. The memoir, the conversation yeah. and that conversation being across media um, and across time. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really gorgeous idea. Thank you. Um, I had a question that's a little more uh, business of writing question. Mm -hmm. um, so the anthology you edited, it was with an imprint of a big five press. Mm -hmm. um, but this memoir, this illustrated memoir, you're publishing with a smaller independent press. And so I know it's still early in the process for that one because it's still a year out. But mm -hmm. or a little less than a year out now. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about sort of how you felt about that difference. What's been um, interesting? What's been nice? What have been the pitfalls of working with an independent publisher and a big five publisher? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, seal press does operate a lot like a small press because they're, oh, yeah. you know, they're, they're an imprint and, you know, they, they function pretty independently, but there are definitely still some of those big five mechanisms, right. Where like there's, there are these kind of systems in place already and, and that's how it works. And you just move through that. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. with the Santa Fe writers project, the small press that I'm working with for the memoir, there's been a lot more flexibility. Um, and, you know, I, I've enjoyed being able to have a say in every step of the process, you know, and really being part of, of all the decisions about how the book is being produced, what it's going to look like, and also how it's being marketed and how we're going to promote it, uh, all of that, you know. Um, the anthology, obviously, was a labor of love, and, and I care about it deeply, but it's also something different when it's like, your very personal project, you know, I've been working on the memoir for 11 years and it's, wow. you know, a story about my life and my family. And it, it's, it's precious to me in, in a different way where I have very strong opinions about, you know, exactly how I want it to be presented and packaged. So yeah. being able to have that control has been great. That's interesting. That's that's really interesting in looking at the difference between small press and big press, uh, mm -hmm. big five in terms of the work and how attached you are to this project that's taken mm -hmm. you 11 years. And, you know, not saying that the anthology is in it. it is less in your mind. You know what I'm saying? You know, right. in any in any sort of way, just a different approach for different projects. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, the, with the anthology, I was kind of more of like the steward of it, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's yes. other people's work and, and I was there to advocate for it and, and put it together in as polished and strong way as possible and give it its best shot out in the world, yeah. you know, and be a champion for it. But it's, it is a different relationship as an editor versus when it's like you're deeply personal. It work. is. It yeah. is. I, I totally agree with that. And that, you know, we're both editors. I'm an editor of yeah. an anthology collection as well. So yeah, I do. I do see it 
uh, in a similar sort of way as being a steward. I always call, uh, say that I'm the midwife, you know, I'm always, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sort of birthing, I'm sort of birthing these other voices into the ecosphere. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, you wanted to actually talk about that, didn't, uh, didn't you see, see the, the role between editing and the other work you do? Yeah, I actually wanted to ask Lily, too, because I know being an editor at Catapult, I'm, I'm going to assume um, as an editor, you're always looking at other people's work and sort of um, assessing what you want for uh, a particular time or particular space. Also see, seeing if the work is, is ready or not, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of uh, realizing whether the the work has come to its full fruition or not. So um, on our previous podcast, when we uh, interviewed Foster, we talked a little bit about um, being an editor, how that influences your work. But Lily, could you say anything about how being an editor changes your work or how it um, influences your work in any sort of way? I mean, I, I would imagine maybe anyway, I won't put any words into your mouth. I'll just let you answer the question. I would say being an editor has definitely helped my writing in a lot of ways. Um, just because it it makes it easier to see patterns and to see, you know, certain mm. things that happen a lot in drafts. You know, I notice that mm. when I'm editing, I most often make cuts from the beginning and the end of a piece, right? Mm. Where where there's like a lot a writer puts in a lot of lead up in the beginning that's not necessary. Yep. Or, you know, they keep talking past the end of the piece, trying to make sure they've really (laughs) driven their point home, you know? Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so noticing those patterns in other people's work allows me to to see when I'm doing those same things, you know, and and try and catch myself and and make those cuts ahead of time before sending it to an editor to make them for me, you know? Um, But it it also is, you know, sometimes I I have to consciously try and turn off my editor brain. I think it, it, it might make it a little harder sometimes to just produce those messy first drafts, you know, and Mm. and let them be messy. Mm. Um, I always, you know, I always find starting a new piece so frustrating because I just want it to be good right away, you know, but that's (laughs) not how it works. (laughs) I think that's called welcome to being a writer. I know, know, yeah, but I, and I think, you know, I, I spend a lot of time reading other people's pieces and, Mm -hmm. You know, even the ones that I end up doing several rounds of editing on, you know, they've they've still been polished and finessed and worked on by the writer before I ever see them. So in in that way, I think maybe it kind of skews my idea of what a first draft should look like. Mm. Mm. Um, And I, I have to kind of shut that off and give myself permission to write badly. Yeah. <laughs> and know that I'll yeah. be able to clean it up later. Yeah. I think I had one more about um, about your writing um, before we move forward. And I really was going to ask you about, you wrote this piece recently, um, and I think it had been adapted from, from some of your tweets about um, you have a book coming out, If the World Doesn't End. Yeah. Um, and I remember when you were talking about it online, um, I really loved hearing it from someone else because I felt the same way. I, you know, there's a, I think 15 month lag between when I found out my book was going to be published and when it came out and I felt the same way. It was, um, uh, Trump's first year in office. And so I felt like, Oh yeah, if we last that long. And, um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that, about that feeling of like, not just like, uh, I hope the world doesn't end before my book comes out, but just like writing and publishing, during times of catastrophe and that sort of like interplay between the personal and caring about your community and worrying about everything that's going on all at once. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, so much can change in a year at any time, but especially right now, you know, it feels like we're getting new and bigger potentially world-ending catastrophes, like, on a monthly schedule, right? Right. So the idea of, like, what is the world even going to look like in spring 2021? You know, Uh this pandemic is not going away. It's it's probably coming back in full force. Who knows how long it's going to last? Who knows what the economic fallout is going to look like? And, you know, while I, I am fully aware that the fate of my book is far from the most important factor in our uncertain future. It, you know, it still is, is something that's important to me. And, you know, I still want 
it to come out in a world where people notice it and, and yeah. have the space to care about it. And, you know, where hopefully the publishing industry still exists and is there to sell books and, yeah. you know, so yeah. there's the, that, there's that side of it that feels like, you know, we're, we're driving full speed towards the edge of a cliff and I just hope we don't go over the edge before the book comes out. Yeah. Um, but then the flip side of it is that, you know, of course, we have to keep putting art out into the world. We have to keep giving each other things to think about and care about other than everything horrible that's happening. You know, we can only, we can only be outraged and terrified for so many hours of a day at yeah. a time yeah. before we completely burn out. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole mix of, of emotions like determination and, you know, glad that I have something to look forward to other than mm. just, doom and and you know grateful that there are other books coming out right now as well that i can celebrate and be excited by and be distracted by um but also just hoping that people are still going to want to buy books by next year we'll see yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think you everything you said is really um we keep talking like i said we keep talking to authors and different people even local bookstores you know i, I think um it's really interesting to to talk to pe people about what's going on in their minds about the publishing industry um both authors who have books who are coming out also publishers uh bookstores because i think you know whatever turmoil the country is in uh the changes are going to affect everyone one way or another you know but we're kind of like all in this together you know you're not alone like you said there are other great books that are coming out that you're mm -hmm. excited by to be distracted by and i just think we kind of have to keep uh i don't know walking the distance together you know yeah for sure And we're back with the pop section of the podcast. Um, uh, Lily stepped out just for a sec. She'll be joining us back again with the bang portion. Of course, yes. Um, yeah, so pop, pop culture, there's politics, some, there's, there's, TV, there seems film, to be, music. Uh, what, there seems to be a lot of stuff going on now. Like, I, like you know, it felt like pop culture was a little quiet during yeah. the deep quarantine, but now yeah. we've just risen back into new junk. You know, yeah. just a pile <laughs> full of junk. Or the old junk has come back at least. Ooh. Ooh, maybe. Ooh, yeah. It's like trash resurfacing on the yeah. on the uh, on the top of the water. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're kind of right. Yeah, you're kind of yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if it stopped happening or we just stopped paying attention to it for a while. And now that we're getting yeah. antsy from being indoors for months, right. we're starting like, all right, we need to care about the old old the old bullshit again. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're right. You know, we're feeling a little bit more free, and therefore we're getting more pop culture BS. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here's what I want to talk about. Uh oh. Uh oh. I want to talk about Kanye West. Yeezy. presidential candidate. Oh my um, God. Kanye yeah. 2020. Kanye I'm not 2020. I'm not doing it either. Of course. No, it's a nightmare. <laughs> but we should talk about it. So uh, listeners, in case you didn't hear uh, <laughs> on, on the 4th of July. Yeah. Uh, right on the right. Right, right, right. Rapper Kanye West announced that he was going to be running for president of the United States in 2020. Yeah. He said that if, um, if Trump steps down from the Republican nomination, he'll run as a Republican. Otherwise, he's going to run as independent. Well, now, and, and recently he just chimed in and said that the party would be called the birthday party. Yes. So he's going to either <laughs> form or join a party called the birthday party um, as his political party. Um, I can't. Yeah. So um, that's that. Um, I think um, people ask him if he's for real, you know, um, yeah. and he said, yeah, I'm dead for real. Um, I wouldn't run as a joke. Like everything I do, I do it to win. I mean, um, I can't. But I don't know if nobody told him or he doesn't care. But Egg that right. Geez. Here we go. Here we go. Bring it. <laughs> he's, right. Here he's it is. He's filing little deadlines. late. Little late. Right. <laughs> he's has filing deadlines in like over a dozen states. Including right. Major. It's right. like uh, there, there's a good argument to say he like literally legally there's no way even if all the circumstances went his way there's no way he can win right because right. past filing right. deadlines he won't right. be on the ballot in many right. states right you technically he say, would not have enough electoral votes to win yeah yeah I agree. exactly yeah people compared it to that moment in the office where michael scott thinks that just saying i declare bankruptcy yeah. means that you declare bankruptcy. You can't just say that you're running for president and it happens, right? There's a lot of, <sighs> for better or worse, there's a lot of legal stuff that needs to happen and he hasn't done that stuff. Um, 
And yeah. you said the chance was you, you didn't talk about the chant. You, you yeah. Know, you said, so the chance, yeah. the rapper who, uh, you know, is another from like, Chicago, also from Chicago yep. has talked a lot about how much he looks up to Kanye and how much Kanye did for Chicago rap. Um, is very much, I would say, an alkalite of Kanye and what yeah, Kanye did. Yeah, I would say so too, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he tweeted, like yesterday, the day before, as we're recording this, he tweeted, um, you know, it's like, uh, people say this is a joke, but Democrats aren't saying what they're running for, just that they're against Trump. So um, tell somebody should maybe explain to us, like, why would Biden be any better than Trump? Mm. And of course, people certainly did tell him. People told yeah. him all the reasons why, even if Biden is a nightmare, and many people do think Biden's a nightmare, exactly. he's still less of a nightmare than Donald Trump. Right. Um, but Terry Crews, uh, oh. yeah, actor model Terry Crews um, tweeted back about. Can we like, call him a model? I mean, really, yeah. are we? Are we? Are we? Are we saying that? I don't. He's done modeling, right? He looks uh, like a model. He's like think a bodybuilder, right? Bodybuilder, maybe. I mean, yeah. but model. Let's not. Let's not. You know. Let's not. <laughs> so Terry Crews tweeted like, "Yes, you know, something like like people are finally waking up to the reality of this." And then from that, from also from like a whole day's worth of people explaining why he's wrong, chance something really great, which was like a follow up tweet where he's like. Um, you know what? I, I'm, I'm running down from this hill that I said I'd die on. Um, you know, like people explain to me why we should vote Biden, even if we're doing so unenthusiastically. Um, and then he added to it just like as shade, he added to it. Like also I reject, reject Terry Cruz's endorsement of my tweet. Exactly. Right. Right. Because Terry, you've been canceled a number of times. We won't even get into why, but yeah. you've, you've had, you've had lots of problematic vocal. He keeps, I mean, Terry Cruz is like, I don't, I don't know. He, I don't know why he keeps putting his foot in, in his mouth over and over and over again. I don't yeah. get it. I just think celebrities end up believing their hype. They believe because they have a platform, they have something really smart to say. And while there yeah. are plenty of smart and educated and politically active celebrities, being a celebrity alone doesn't make you that. Yeah. Right? And so he keeps yeah. talking about things that, I don't know, that he's not ready to engage in, I think, might be a good way to just explain it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I mean... Where do we begin on this? You know what yeah. I mean? People, I just, yeah, I just don't, I don't know. But I thought it was really interesting. Actually, the other day I tweeted too, um, Angela Davis, uh, famous uh, activist and uh, civil rights, I guess you would say, activist as well, um, was also talking about this idea about why um, people should vote for Biden, you know, in, in lieu of this conversation defending, you know, or I don't know, defending Biden. I won't really say that. But in her video, she basically was like, yeah, you know, Biden has a lot of problems. He's very problematic, but it's really about who can be, um, you know, pressured, most effectively pressured into allowing for more space for the evolving anti-racist movement, you know? Yeah, so I sure. think like that kind of statement was more what I thought was really important. You know, just someone, um, you know, someone who's been here for a long time, Angela Davis has been around this block a long time, you know, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, intellectually astute, just sort of saying, yo, you know, yeah, we, we know Biden's not perfect. We know that. Yeah. But I mean, this idea about, you know, Kanye 2020, we just can't indulge in that. We can't we can't go down that road. If yeah. so, we're doing a reactionary thing in response to to Trump 20, you know, 2017 or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, why are we taking TV TV stars and putting them into the government? I just yeah, don't I don't understand sure. why we're thinking yeah, about I think, that. I think that what I liked about that uh, Angela Davis interview was that she wasn't yeah. defending Biden. Right. Like she's right. like, no, Biden's right. not great at all right right um, right but we need to vote for him right right um, exactly and I, think, I think her sentiment works towards that classic idea of like you vote for the enemy that you want right yeah. Um, yeah um and we shouldn't vote for biden because we like him because but like she says because he can be pressured um, right yeah yeah right. And, and even aside from that like you said kanye has a history of being wrong right He's a very talented rapper um and a very talented producer and a moderately talented designer um <laughs> shade but, yes but Love um, it. you know like his his music his lyrics are a history of like reaction reactionaryism right like yeah. um his second song is his compl him complaining that like um I i'm not allowed to rap about my faith 
right? Yeah. Like, yeah. He, his rap is rooted in conservatism. Um, yeah. And then he announced sort of um, the vice president choice that he was said he's considering. Oh, yeah. Who was is that this, person? Um, Michelle Tibda, uh, Tidball. Um, oh. She described herself as a biblical life coach. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm and, passing and... out asleep. I mean, this just, this just, <laughs> this, this is so. I mean, I just. I, I, here's my thing. Here's my real question to you: D- Is this some sort of a, a, a stunt? Okay, that's the real question. And what is the stunt supposed to provide? That's yeah. the. You know, that's what I. That's what I'm really interested in. Yeah, if it's performance art, what is the intent? Yeah, right. Or, or you know, or if he's you know, some people have said he's trying to take the black vote away from Biden. I don't <laughs> think so because you know, I don't. I don't think there are sixty-year-old people in South Carolina who are going to vote for Kanye. You know, yeah. I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't say that. So I think that that notion is a is false. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I mean, I, of course there will be some black people who would vote for Kanye. Of course that. But in terms of taking away massive amounts of votes, um, the black vote from from Biden to Kanye, I don't see that. So I'm just wondering what the whole uh, shebang, what the idea is here. You yeah. know? I mean, I think that, I think that it's, I think it's really ignorant for people to assume that Kanye will be successful if that is his goal. Right. Like, cause like you said, um, you know, boomers and Xers aren't going to vote for Kanye because he's Kanye. Right. Um, yeah. and, and, and I mean, just to assume that, that black voters in America are a monolithic block, yep. that they only vote for someone based on identity politics is really, regressive and I would say even racist. Right. Um, but I, I do think there might be the case to say that people are Kanye or Kanye's people or Trump people might hope that it does that. Yeah. Now see, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can't, think, I, I can't imagine it being successful, you know? Right. That's sort of, I mean, well, well, we've already talked about, it. I mean, he can't even be, he's not even legal in some States, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. so yeah, it can't be, but, but, you know, again, you know, the political politics is always about distraction and it's always interesting to see, you know, what comes up or what someone says or what, you know, as we get closer and closer to November, I imagine we'll see, um, not just more people like Kanye trying to declare late, late being on the ballot, but yeah. I think we'll see more antics. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. More pyrotechnics. You know what yeah, I'm saying? For sure. Right. I think that's just part of what we'll probably see as we come crashing upon this election deadline. Yeah. Someone Sad. save us. Sad. So you have some. You have some more. That is a little less political. Uh, less political, but still a bunch of BS. Um, <laughs> so what shall I say, people? The thing that's been trending, I feel like, for the past week, uh, I don't know when this will come out, but uh, for a while here has been the talk about uh, Jada Pinkett and Will Smith. You know, uh, I don't know. I mean, where do we begin with this story? I mean, I don't need to go into the details for those of you who may not have heard. The gist is, is that um, Will and Jada have always been in some uh, form of an open, I'm going to use that word, uh, polyamorous relationship. I mean, it has been established for a while, whether or not uh, the media is telling you that. Um, but what the, the newer part of it that's come to light is that she was apparently, uh, while while her and Will were on a break, um, quote unquote, uh, she got involved with a young uh, 27-year-old, um, I guess artist is what you would call him. His name is August Alice. Alicina, I guess is how you say the Elise, Elisa, Alicina. I don't know how you say the last name. I'm sort of stumbling over it. Uh, singer. Um, she got involved with uh, this young man and um, this young man came out to tell his story and kind of felt uh, used. And uh, I don't know necessarily, I would say abused, but felt very discarded by uh, Jada. I think there are some interesting um, politics around, around the story, politics about um, not just about consent, um, per se, but about uh, how it is that grown people get into uh, relationships with young people, because apparently this uh, young boy, August, was sort of taken in by the family, was a family friend, was friends with her son. Um, I think some of those um, tidbits tend to come across a little bit uh, questionable that she would date someone that was that close and sort of a trusted family friend and was going through some own, his own interpersonal things himself. So I think that can be interesting, the, the politics of thinking through some of those dynamics. But what I think is totally uninteresting is like who the stars are, are or are not sleeping with. Like, I, yeah. I don't know. I, you know, what, what do you think, Anthony? I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, like a lot of times when, when, uh, ethanol monogamy comes to the news, like people want to sensationalize that. And really for me, that's the least interesting part, right? Right. Um, they, right. they, they're together for a long time. They see other people. Right. That's, that's not interesting. Right. It's very easy. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's the case to say that, like, 
poly and ethnically non-monogamous people appreciate the representation, right? Mm. Um, but for me, so what? It's sort of boring, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, I think I think there are some really interesting conversations going around around age, around wealth and yes. status. That's exactly around, what I'm saying. Around uh, yes. courting and flirting with someone who's in mourning, who's a friend yeah. of your child. Yeah. Um, and I think those are really interesting questions because it's not as clear cut, right? Um, right. it's, it's a gray area for ethics that a lot of people would say it's questionable. Some people would say it's downright unethical. Yeah. Some people would say, Hey, there's no issue here. Um, and so, yeah, I think that conversation is really interesting. And that's the one I think that has more, uh, public relevance, right? Is yeah. a question of, um, how do we date and flirt and hook up and get entangled, as she says, um, in ways that are ethical for everyone involved? Yeah, I think I think that's really what I'm interested in. You know, people people having conversations about that, because I think that some of the like I said, I think there are a lot of questionable <laughs> uh, tidbits about this entanglement. You know, um, I think, about, you know, in general. But like you said, the part that's totally uninteresting is that there are two people who are married who see other people. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean. You know, that's not it's not new either. It may be new for some people who are just, uh, you know, I don't know, finding out, but it's not new. It's not new to them. And so I yeah. think. Um, but, yeah, I think, uh, you know, thinking about um, someone who, like you said, is in a state of mourning, uh, perhaps even in a compromised mental uh, capability, needing to recover and sort of take yeah. shelter from from sort of things, you know, some things and, and preying on them for a relationship or or getting involved, even if we don't look at it as predatory, but getting involved with that person is not the smartest and or healthiest decision. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there it is people. Uh, one last thing in pop yep. news before we move on. Yep. Um, Hamilton, the hit Broadway play. Oh yeah. Uh, has been recorded and it's now streaming on Disney plus. Um, have you watched it online? Did you see it beforehand? I have not. I have seen it beforehand, but I have not watched the new, the Disney Plus, the Disney Plus of it edition. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. People who um, had, had seen it, whether on Broadway or touring beforehand, yeah. are saying they're actually really excited to see it on screen because, you know, like we're not the super wealthy class. And so most people I know sat in like, you know, uh, stage right, upper deck. Uh, right, that's sort of true. Seats. Yeah. And yeah. so to have, you know, first row zoomed in seats uh, is sort pretty of cool. nice. Yeah. yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Have you, did you see the, the TV version? Yeah, so this is really interesting. I didn't see it on Broadway. I was going to see it when it was touring. Um, I had heard mixed reviews even then. Um, but uh, but because I was waiting to see it, I avoided everything. I avoided reading about it. I avoided listening to the songs okay, on their okay, own. Okay. I avoided everything I could until yeah. I could see it. And then, yeah, since it's been streaming, uh, I watched it. Um, and? Uh, I have opinions about it. Uh, I mean, you're not, but you say, <laughs> you, you're like, I have opinions. You're like, it's like, it's, like, it's like what you do if you don't like the Lemonade album by Beyonce. You're so afraid to say anything that you say, you say, oh, I have opinions about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think before I say my opinions, I want to say that it is interesting that suddenly so many people have opinions, right? Because of how this platform has given it, even though, you know, the best the biggest play produced in the last five, maybe 10 years. Yeah, right? I would probably say so. Yeah. Um, it, a whole bunch of people haven't seen it, right? Because of just the nature of Broadway, of, of, of theater in America, right? That big yeah. budget things yeah. only really get produced uh, in New York City. Right. And then maybe some secondary cities like Chicago, right? right. Um, and then it does a national tour. And maybe then you can see it if you don't live near New York, right? Right, right. Um, and so the nature of that is a weird thing already. Um, so even though this is still behind a paywall, many, many more people have suddenly have access to it. And sure. so it's really interesting to see, you know, a play that's five plus years old. Um, it's been touring for three years um, is now having the sun resurgence of commentary on it mm -hmm. from people who are finally experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Including myself. Right. But you still have not, Given All right. your opinion of the show. <laughs> I think it's really amazing. I think um, as a poet, I'm really interested in the verse. I think um, the, the verse 
is really well crafted. Um, the flow is really interesting. Um, I think it's clearly written by poets and rappers who know what they're doing. Mm. Um, and I also think it's really amazing. I was talking to a friend who had read a bit, but also she herself is works in theater and theater production and the the politics of theater. Um, And she was telling me that, um, you know, the revolutionary thing is not the story. There are a lot of problems with the story and people are, are mistaking that the story or being told in rap is a revolutionary thing. And that's not the revolutionary thing is that a person of color written, fronted, produced, acted in peace is the biggest play in the country. Yeah. Um, and that's revolutionary. Um, the sort of production behind it, um, and the intent behind that revolutionary thing, not the story. And so I'm really excited that so many people's careers were launched or amplified because of it. And that so many of those people were people of color. Yeah, I think that I think that that's the thing that I the, the confident thing that I could say about it um, as well, not having seen um, the television, the television version. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, yes, I think uh, the show being, like you said, written and produced and and bo- amplifying and boosting so many careers. I think that's really powerful and important. Um, I, I do wonder I am very interested in the idea of telling colonial uh, history, you know what I'm saying? And, and yeah. using and using rap and verse to do that. Right. Uh, I always I've always had problems when, uh, you know, uh, there's rap selling uh, gap jeans. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I always yeah, exactly. I've always I've always thought that commercialization. That's a very interesting um I think someone could do a very interesting dissertation paper on this because I think it's interesting to think about a a, a form of a music and art that was so vilified um, in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, nationally vil- vilified, right? We're not just talking about parents telling kids not to listen to rap. We're talking about um, movements on the Senate floor, right? Yeah, Bills right. being written against um, rap lyrics, right? You yeah. understand what yeah. I'm saying? So this is this is more than a this is this is much very much a national phenomenon in the way of of how rap has been dealt with nationally. But um, so it's very interesting to me to think about how that medium can be used to tell um, stories about the founding of America and the found, you know, our forefathers and all of these sorts of things and how, how that impacts how, how people are taking that in. Why are they more apt to take that in in that way than they would if this were, I don't know, you know, a story told through classical music or whatever, you know what I'm yeah. saying? So it's very interesting that that part of it is very um you know, and, and you, like you said, using many uh, minority peoples, black and brown careers that are, are la- launching their careers from this play. But, um, you know, and using this music that, like I said, was once um, so, uh, you know, looked down upon and, it, you know, in this country. And now suddenly it is uh, the basis for one of the most, uh, you know, world, probably worldwide known plays, you know, definitely nationally known plays in America. So, I mean, you know, those are interesting juxtapositions for me. I mean, yeah, I think it's really interesting from the art perspective, right? Of, of, like you said, a maligned type of art, but also like, but also a maligned art of an oppressed people. Yeah, right? that's what I'm saying. You um, used to tell the story of yeah, the history yeah. of America. Yeah. And and not just the history of America, a real pro-imperial propaganda piece about yeah. America. Yeah. Right? I would say right? so too. Yeah. It, it 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 elevates the you founding fathers it, in the same <laughs> mythology that our our public histories do. Yeah. Um, it elevates sort of like smartest person in the room mythology. Right. It elevates a bootstraps mythology, which a lot yeah. of critical race theorists have is a racist mythology. Um, And I think for me, um, I understand why like LMM as an immigrant, considering Hamilton is an immigrant is means something to him. It would mean something to people who are immigrants. Right. But for me, it's, I think a really dangerous thing to take someone who, who immigrated really not from one country or another, because this is a pre national view who immigrated from one occupied British-occupied territory to another British-occupied territory yeah, and did so from a family of, of people who enslaved people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fleeing um, the revolutions of slave people in order to come here, right? Yeah. It's dangerous to call that type of person an immigrant, I think. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, yeah, this is my problem with the play, obviously. I, I said all the nice stuff up front, but this is my real objection to the play. Is like, yeah. It's a, a real dangerous propaganda piece, and for it to be an imperial propaganda piece told through 
the the art and the particular art form of a marginalized people. Yeah. That's got really complicated implications. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you and I are really, I feel like, articulating two, you know, same sides of a coin. Yeah, for really, sure. realistically, you know. So I think it's, and you know, and you know, not and not odd that it's taking a rise during this time period in history, right? Not yeah. a, <laughs> that's not a, you know what I'm saying? I hate to say that too, but that's not, that's not surprising, right? You know what I'm saying? That this kind of, that like you're saying, propaganda piece is being, you know, is really, really taking off even now in the television form, you know what I'm saying? Br- brought uh-huh. to people's t- TVs as opposed to the play, you know what I'm saying? So I think, I think particular moments in history bring to rise particular kinds of art, right? You know, and I yeah. think so, I mean, I've, you can't, you cannot divorce historical movements from art. So you, you, can, you can't do that. So I think that's even more complex to think about. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. get out of here. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just like, what? You know what I'm saying? And, and like I said to you earlier, rap ain't new. It ain't, it ain't never new. It's been around for a long time. Yeah. And it's funny that suddenly people just think it is. And, you know, especially to me, I think it's really interesting to see um, so many non-minority people just think this is delightful. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. They, I mean, people are loving this, yeah. loving it. Well, I think it's really interesting just the, the progress of rap uh, aside from this play, right? That it came from where it did, right? It came from house parties um, spinning like disco in New York. Yeah. To, I mean, aside from this play, I think rap's the most popular music in the world right now. Yeah, some um, people say. Yeah, some people say. Yeah. yeah. And so what it's the movement it's become, um, how it's a uniquely, I think it's a, a, a like jazz, an organically American art. Mm. Um, and, uh, but like you said, it's history as uh, an art form for marginalized people, right? For right. people who didn't get the mic, didn't get a national stage. Right. Um, to be what it is and then to be deployed in this way for this play. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I would be more interested in people watching the, the Nas documentary if they want to know a history of, <laughs> of yeah. hip hop and rap. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would be much, sure. which is which is, it's pretty it's pretty well done, in my opinion. But um, but it's really focuses on Nas. But I digress. But, yeah, I think it is what, what all of the things that you're sort of saying is, um, yeah. you know, I, I do think it has come a long way from the streets, um, you know, from housing projects in the Bronx, you know, hip hop having its uh, origin there. But at the same time, I think um where it's going, it's uh, slightly problematic sometimes to see where it's going and how it's being used. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, uh, I don't know. Master's tools. I don't know. Audrey, where where do we, where do we go? I don't know. Right. Right. All right, and we're back with the bang portion of the podcast. We're really excited. Lily is back with us for this section. Um, And I had a question for us this time. I was going to ask everybody. um, Okay, so you know we've been locked indoors and plenty of work to do. But we've also had uh, had to figure out what our free time looks like. So I was going to ask you, what's a sort of quarantine discovery for you? What's something that during these months where we've been mostly indoors, something that you have discovered for yourself, whether it's something you like, um, you know, a, a habit that you have, a TV show or music that you like, a new book, uh, a, a new food that you're in love with. What have you, what, what have you discovered for yourself during this time? And Lily, since you're a guest, why don't you start us off? Sure. Um, so mine, I guess is a, a rediscovery and I since the beginning of the lockdown quarantine I have started reading fiction again for the first time in a really long time Mm. um I used to read tons and tons of fiction but then you know when I started working on my memoir I was reading a lot of memoirs just to you know understand the genre see how it works get inspired etc um and that became my pretty much sole focus for years, reading lots of memoir and essays. And, you know, and then when I became an editor of memoir and started and started hosting a memoir reading series, you know, I just got further and further entrenched in that corner of the literary world. Um, and I, I kind of forgot 
to read solely for pleasure. You know, everything was a yeah. little bit research, a little bit, you know, about keeping up with what was going on. Um, and, you know, of course, I greatly enjoy a lot of those reads, but it's, there's something different when you're reading something solely for enjoyment. Um, so I, I decided to make my return to reading solely for pleasure kind of as a replacement for the time that I would be, you know, seeing friends and relaxing and decompressing outside, um, away from work. And I started that off by, uh, revisiting an all-time favorite novel of mine, which is East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's a long engrossing read and I, you know, I figured revisiting a favorite would, would help me kind of open the door back into that world. And it was really, really wonderful and enjoyable. And so next I'm going to read Rebecca. Rebecca. That's fantastic. That brings me so much joy to think about you returning to this genre, (laughs) not just like opening it back up, but like in doing so intentionally and like starting with an old favorite. That's, that's joyful. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really nice. Yeah. Cece, what about you? Well, mine is very simple and very um, material and ridiculous, but um, (laughs) I love, well, everybody loves food, but I love sweets through the roof. Um, I love cupcakes, all things, cakes, cookies, all those sorts of things. So um, long story short, I was talking to a friend of mine and I was like, yeah, it's the quarantine. This is before they lifted the stay at home or- orders. And I was like, you know, I just need one thing to make me happy. Like on the weekends, like I really love if I could get like donuts or something. And my friend was like, oh, there are all these places that are like uh, either delivering donuts or you can come and pick up donuts. And I was like, really? What? Are you kidding me? So my new <laughs> discovery is is a place here locally in Baltimore called Donut Alliance. Right. It is right. uh, almost all the way up there in Ham- in the neighborhood of Hamilton, more or less, uh, near Morgan State University. Yeah. Um, and Donut Alliance does vegan. First of all, I was scared because they're vegan donuts. And <laughs> I'm not even sure what a vegan donut actually is because <laughs> because I don't know what to do. I mean, they, they don't have eggs or they. I don't know, but I don't care. People, the donuts are amazing. And um, it's become my new obsession. So like not every weekend, but like every other weekend, I will put in an order of donuts and go pick up my box of very gourmet, uh, crazy flavors like Oreo cookie and blueberry smash and, you know, all these kinds of crazy flavors that just really make me happy. Give me something to look forward to. So that's it. That's my that's my quarantine indulgence. That's fantastic. I really want a donut now. <laughs> <laughs> Lily, if you were here, if you were here, it would totally be like, yes, we should pick up donuts from yeah. Donut Alliance. That's a super big plug for my my local favorite uh, donut bakery here, but they're amazing. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited that I found um, something to make me fat, but also happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I actually, um, my partner, I just got some good news this week about something getting published. And so, oh, yeah. um, my partner actually bought me, uh, some gourmet donuts like that just like two days ago. So I'm feeling, oh, from where? From, where? Um, uh, from full circle in the Hamden oh, yeah. neighborhood. Yep. Um, yep. I know full circle. Yeah. And same thing, like really wild gourmet flavors. I got like a, a, a stuffed Earl Grey donut and a, um, a Dunkaroos donut after the night. Snack Dunkaroos. Love it. Yeah, Love so it. I'm feeling that. Um, Love it. I think mine. Um, uh, I've I've watched a lot more TV than I normally do um, when I'm not. Yeah. Uh, in lockdown, I normally save Me TV too. for like when I'm working out, like put it on when I'm on the treadmill or yeah. like lift or do squats and watch TV. Um, but I've been watching a lot of TV outside of that since we've been locked down. And I think one of my favorites is, did y'all see this? Um, it's an animated kind of series undone. Um, I've on seen Amazon it Prime. flash past my Netflix. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it is so good. I, I'm not making this up when I say it. it's probably the, my favorite show that I've seen in, in many years. Um, it's a limited series, it's like 10 episodes. Um, and it's like, um, it's about a person who starts seeing their dead father and they um, are grappling with, is this a mental health issue? Mm. Is this some sort of magical realism? Is this related to the main character's indigenous sort of faith and spiritualism? Um, and it sort of leaves that ambiguous. Um, 
and it's just it's well written it's well cast the animation is weird but not distracting and they end up doing things in the show that sort of require animation like um that you couldn't do in a live action show without some serious effects budgets um and it's just it's smart and it's intimate and it's interesting and sort of like the best of like magical realist speculative fiction gets right when it's really human and personal and literary um so so yeah it's just brilliant uh undone uh and i think it's amazon prime who produces it and that's where you can find it too oh amazing undone shout out for yeah. your new show there yeah, it is bob odenkirk's cool. in it and so good oh <laughs> all right great thank you all so much for that <laughs> lily thank you for joining us so much it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you so much for having me it was really fun yeah, Lily, we hope we, you weren't nervous to come on with us. Look, we we were all very nice. Yes, you were. Painless and even fun. Yeah. And it's a shame it's a shame we can't close down and go up the street for donuts now. But yeah. you'll have to at exactly. some future writing things share donuts together. Yes. Right. Someday, maybe when we can go outside again. Maybe yes. AWP maybe, ever maybe again. even, you know, who knows? A future even a future AWP, who knows? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> All right, cool. That's it. That's today's episode. Thanks again to Lily for joining us. Yeah, um, so amazing to have and her. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we, as always, we want to encourage you to follow us, um, to smash that subscribe button. Right. Um, Maybe post a review. Reviews. Post yeah. a review. Tell yeah. your friends. Yeah, that stuff amplifies us, gets us to more listeners, and uh, we certainly appreciate it. It feels good. It gives us warms and fuzzies. We always love meeting. We always love meeting fans of the show. Yeah, we're on uh, Instagram and Twitter at at Lit Pop Bang. Yes, indeed. And next month we'll be coming live to you from Outright. Yeah, yeah, from Outright. Outright. So if you've been listening for a while, you know that every year we join Outright, a regional writers conference, um, and do some program with them. So we're looking forward to that next month. Yep, indeed. And as always, coming to you from Charm City, I'm Anthony. And I'm Cece. And this has been Lit Pop Bang. Bang.